We're back, people. Talking Thrones. Season 2 premiere. Episode 11 overall of Game of Thrones. Season 1. Season 2. Episode 1. The North Remembers. Pat, you ready to get this going? Yeah, man. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully uh, we wow. remember wait, how to do wait, this wait, thing, you know? Wait, wait, wait inspire <laughs> confidence there. No, no. Hey, listen. The North Remembers, but we're going to have to figure out if we know how to to do this show on Talking TV, right? I guess we're going to find out. Stay tuned, people. We're back. It's Talking Thrones. What's up, Pat? Hey, nothing much. You know, besides uh, basically having the uh, YouTube feed go off and, and <laughs> distract me a little bit during the opening, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, hey, listen, it happens. Uh, not, you know, what can I say? Like I said, it happens. Um, so what did you do with your uh, your last couple of weeks here? With, with, you mean with my week off? Well, uh, I went to Jamaica. Uh, I got a tan. Uh, I got sick. Um What's it called? I watched some really bad movies because I'm not going to lie. July has been a pretty terrible month for movies, but uh, I'm excited. I'm glad to be back with Game of Thrones. Honestly, I, it's funny because, we, like I said, we 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 pre-recorded the finale for season one. So even though it's by YouTube's release standard, it's only been two weeks since our last episode. For me, it feels like it's almost been a month because we recorded the penultimate two episodes, the final two episodes of season one back to back. So it feels like it's been a really long time. And so when I watched the season two premiere this morning, I was just I was just so happy to be back. I'm like, oh man, I've been I've been missing some quality in my life. So I'm glad to have yeah, something. Yeah, Dom. I, basically, I feel like I watched like season two and three, and then I had to go back and watch, uh, <laughs> watch. this episode you, again. Man, you got to do it week to week. You got to do it. Week I know. To week. I, no, I'm doing it week to week. I'm watching every episode. You know, basically the morning of the podcast, and then basically discussing it with you. But the the thing is, I think season two really got to me. Like after, uh, you know, seeing some of the, you know, basically Ned Stark getting, uh, axed. It was, I had to go forward. I had to watch right. more episodes and I got through season two and it was like, ah, I can't, I can't really be stopping. And so, no, you know, it's two. one of those things where it, it, this is definitely a binge worthy show. Once season two hits. Yeah. Season two is definitely where the binge, if you will, begin the binge ability for this show really begins, right? We talked about it. Season one is kind of helped by the binge, but season two sets a lot of kind of micro trends that even, even though season one sets in line, all of the story threads, right? Season two, I feel like is what establishes a lot of the trends going forward, right? We have the premiere trend that starts, obviously the penultimate and finale trend that kind of starts. We have a lot of kind, a lot of the isms that would become established. You know, a lot of the memes, a lot of the kind of, you know, the more memorable lines, a lot of the memorable moments that get referenced a lot of those get established in season two but we have a lot of stuff to cover as far as uh, with what this premiere has to handle as far as we are introduced to so many different new settings so many different new characters all of them all of this stuff is just constantly thrown at you and you're kind of realize oh yeah we're in this world now and so the thing that i'll say though to kind of kick off this podcast as far as the difference between the odd seasons and the even seasons right so we know that the odd seasons are typically more so towards geared towards setup and the even seasons are geared towards action. That's why, with the exception, I feel like, of the last season, there's overall a lot more positive feeling towards seasons two, four, and six 
rather than seasons one, three, and five. I find season three, with the exception being the Red Wedding. But the thing that we're gonna know that we're gonna see as we cover this season going forward is that Ned Stark's death certainly did spur a lot of events in motion, and there are going to be a lot of things that happen, a lot of action that happens this season, a lot of character portrayal that happens this season, a lot of character growth that happens this season, and a lot of stuff that continues to push our story forward. So, Pat, you have anything else that you wanted to say before we get into what actually happens in this episode? Hey, listen, I'm just going to jump right into what I find kind of slaps you in the face in this first episode, and that's how much of a you know, a-hole uh, Joffrey is. Yeah, Joffrey sucks. He, he, as, he's as, not going to get any la- better. As if the last <laughs> season didn't reinforce that enough. The, it, it, the opening scene of this episode, which again is entitled The North Remembers, this is the third episode directed by Alan Taylor, written, of course, once again by Betty Off and Weiss. And we're, we're on Joffrey's name day. We don't know how much time has passed between the ending of the first season and the beginning of this season, but I have to assume it hasn't been that much. You know, like Westeros time is really weird relative to our time. But it starts off literally just with, of course, Joffrey doing what, what you know, of course, what any like precocious, like 14 year old, I think he's supposed to be like 14 or 15 for his name day here. It would have done, which is just having just knights beat the shit out of each other and just murder each other. Yeah, well, I think it it comes down to what he views as being a king. And that is, if I show that I'm ruthless, that basically people will fear me. And, you know, it's one of those things where he's young and he doesn't really understand how things work. He doesn't understand how to invoke fear from people. And to a certain degree, like peasants and whatnot will be fearful of a guy who's sort of, you know, axing people's heads off and, And ripping their tongues out and all all the hated stuff. For the most part, uh, you know, as we progress through this season, we're going to learn that, you know, fear turns towards uh, a little bit of anger and it's not the right type of fear that he's invoking. And it's really his naivete that is, um, you know, basically blinding him. And any of these scenes where we like this, we're seeing the hound just like throw someone off the top of a building during a joust. And it's, you know, basically we have, um, I forgot what the, uh, the knight's name is, but he, he shows Holland. up at, yeah. So Dante shows up with, uh, like two drinks in him and then Joffrey takes offense and basically decides, I, I don't know. Well, I, I don't he, know about he, you. I, I got the sense listen, it's a little bit more than two. I feel like, you know, he has to be an honest knight and he said two drinks. So I'm going to have to believe him on this because the last honest knight in Westeros well, it's, he's got to be right. You know, maybe he embellished a little bit, maybe three Just drinks, but like the, the fact is, you know, what Joffrey does basically hold him down, you know, shove the wine in his throat. It's like it, Joffrey is not going to win over any fans Anyone. at all during his reign. And ultimately, you know, I think we mentioned this uh, either last episode or, or two episodes ago, you know, it's the people in this show that don't really play the game you know, that basically end up uh, slaughtered. And I think, you know, Joffrey basically doing his own thing, being this horrific, sadistic guy, is basically him not really playing the game properly. And that ultimately leads to to his downfall, uh, which is seasons away. But like, (laughs) basically, we have to keep an eye on this. You know, it's how bad Joffrey plays the game. 
Absolutely. It's definitely going to be worth noting. Obviously, we know that seasons two and three see Joffrey at its worst. Season three, less so because he's not torturing Sansa as much. But this season, we're, we're going to see some awful, awful moments from Joffrey, particularly at the end of this episode. But what I wanted to do kind of for the purposes of this episode is the thing about like these Game of Thrones season premieres going forward. You know, we obviously had the pilot last season, which was just setting everything up and just, you know, getting us reoriented to the world of Game of Thrones. But I kind of wanted to do similar what, ha what we're going to do with finales going forward, which is kind of just do a play-by-play -play recap of all the characters and kind of what where they're at as far as in their journey kind of at the start and the end of each season and so we're going to do that for this premiere as well so we hit joffrey obviously and then of course we have coming in to save not only the scene but also the season as the is somebody who was being geared towards it and we're now in it this is the mvp let's call it of Tyrion lannister like this is Tyrion lannister having his mvp season i, I don't know sports terms so i don't know but let, let's call i don't know would you chalk him up to the hall <laughs> yes. of fame in this season or not yet well, uh, Hall of Fame is, is long-term, and, and as we all know, Tyrion gets to decide the fate of Westeros, even though he's that's a true, prisoner. That's true, that's true. So that's true. I guess so, he is the Hall of Fame, but yeah, I uh, guess. he's definitely the most valuable player here in this season, yes. and it all starts with him coming in and him basically sort of saying, hey, celebrate your name day. I got business to take care yeah. of. And he just kind of wanders off into the uh, the chamber of the- Small uh, council chamber. Yeah, the small council chamber. So Yeah, deal dealing with with very pivotal matters of discussing whether summer is at an end and whether they have enough wheat to get through it and, you know, the amount of refugees that are coming into the city. And, of course, what is Cersei doing? Just basically ignoring most of it. You know, it's funny how we criticize, you know, Robert a lot for some of his inability uh, to rule last season, but obviously he knew that when the chips were down and how to handle the important things. But it's this is kind of the beginning of, of a long trajectory that shows that Cersei may not be as equipped to rule as she thinks she does. And in strolls in Tyrion, who, of course, it, it, this is like a nightmare scenario for Cersei. This really is. Because her father's not here. Her, her brother slash lover has been kidnapped. Her eldest child is on the throne, which she originally thought was going to be a great idea, but it is slowly turning out to be an absolute disaster. And now in comes her little brother. And if there's one person outside of Tywin Lannister who possibly hates Tyrion almost as much as he does, it's Cersei. And when, of course, not only does he waltz in, basically state that Tywin has made him hand of the king, and then basically point out all of all of the ways in which she is screwed up in the previous season, basically saying, now, uh, yeah, yeah, am I imagining this, Dom? But do, doesn't Tyrion like give Cersei a kiss or, at some he point? He does. He kisses her on the cheek scene. when he first sees her. <laughs> it's really absurd. I, like, I you know, know, I don't think the line is ravishing as ever, which I mean, this is a family that we know commits active incest, so I don't know how I feel about that. Well, just like how um, much they hate each other, yeah. and this is the nicety that they show in front of the other, uh, you know, advisors. And I think it's one of those things where you know Cersei wants to really rule, and you know, I think she might be right in this case where it's like, hey, let the peasants be outside the gate. Right. But the fact is. The issue is she can't really control her son, Joffrey, on the throne, right? He basically does whatever he feels like doing. And I think that's the biggest problem is that the Lannisters have a game plan of how to basically uh, carry their name into the future. And Joffrey is just doing his own thing and he doesn't really care that much about the uh, the game plan, you know? Right. So. That's going to be the, sort of the conflict, right? Indeed. You know, I, I, just a couple moments that I wanted to point out within this scene that are just fantastic. When he says, uh, yes, quite, quite. When Cersei says, I did nothing. And then Tyrion's like, oh, quite right. You did nothing. And then now the North is, <laughs> and now the North is risen yeah. up against us. All because of that haunting, that bit of theater will haunt our family for generations. And then when he's like, we have two Stark girls to train. And then Cersei's like, one. And Tyrion's eyes just bolt. And he's like, 
Yeah, what? well, it's like, you, like, what? You, like be, you beheaded you one star, you, let the you other lost one the other. <laughs> it's like, how does yeah. it feel to be the disappointing child? Which is just so satisfying on so many different levels for Tyrion, for this to be like the one moment where Tyrion finally gets the vindication where he knows he's right and he can shit all over his sister. I feel like every person that's ever had that one sibling that always shat on them and then finally gets that one chance to get their revenge, it's just, I feel like that was validation for all of those people that watched this show at that moment. But so... That's really the only big Tyrion moment that happens before we get to, you know, the it scene. At the end, I think he has, like, one other scene with Shay, and it's like, oh, okay. It's kind of just to remind us. It's like, oh, yeah, Shay's here, and Shay's still a character. Yeah, uh, the, well, bringing, bringing Shay into the capital, the fact that they have to be careful and cautious because basically we're foreshadowing that something's going to take place with them targeting Shay. Right. You know. So then I'm going to speed through these next couple of uh, of plot lines because for because these plot lines, for the most part, are really just quick setups, like quick blinker you miss it. So we have Winterfell. Uh, Bran is now kind of acting ruler along with Maester Lewin. He's kind of, you know, learning what it's like to rule, learning how to deal with the, you know, the comings and goings of just like regular peasants and everything, but clearly not. And, and it's, it's starting to learn that, like, you know, the, it's just kind of more of a reminder that, like, the high and mighty status of the lords is, is, you know, just a reminder that, like, yeah, there is, like, actual, real, just everyday shit that people have to deal with and that the lords well, have to kind of Well, Dom, I, I think one of the big things that takes place during this episode is giving us characterization about the North, because right. a lot of what takes place is this idea that, you know, the North, necessarily, they band together and they, they you know, uh, gave their promise to the Stark name, but they're not necessarily all 100% on the same page. Right. And I think we start to see sort of, you know, that idea where it's like, you know, this one guy is like, I can't fix my, uh, you know, castle or, or whatever it is. I can't fix my home because I sent all our men down to war. And basically he doesn't even respect uh, Rob as King of the North. And he has to be reminded like, well, Rob is the King of the North. And so it's one of those things where, uh, there are cracks uh, within the Bannermen, and you know that's going to be a, a big part of what happens forward with this whole sort of war of multiple kings. Is that the North is not as solidified and together as they thought? Absolutely, it's going to result obviously once we see Theon invade the North later on in the season. Once we see Bran and Rickon have to go on the run. Once we see how that affects Rob even down in the Riverlands later on after this season. You know later on in the season as well. It kind of you know, the fracturing of the North and that kind of that sequence ends with uh, Bran with Osha and Hodor in the woods and them going to uh, the pool with uh, Osha figuring out about more of Bran's weird trees and. Uh, weird dreams and of course we see the first shot of something that a lot of people and I just in general I feel like has been forgotten about as time went on but I remember it was a pretty big deal when I read the book obviously that season two is based off of right we're, we're now on a book two a clash of kings as far as that goes which is the shot of the red comet that's floating across the sky and I remember a big thing obviously when the book started is this kind of uniting everyone but also you know just reflecting the nature of Game of Thrones which is that kind of similar to which is like similar to like the White Walker setting up the overwhelming loom. Now we have the fire from the comets, which a lot of people take to be different meanings. A lot of people think, oh, it means this person's going to be king. It's going to be this person to be king. But I think Osha is the one that really nails the meaning of it, which is that it signifies that something is back in the world that has never been before, which is dragons. And we get two kind of like kind of spinoffs of that, right? So then we obviously cut to the only scene in Essos with Daenerys. Um, who and who with along with what's left of her Kalsar and Ser Jorah are just kind of wandering across the red waste. And then you wonder, wait, why the hell are they just wandering in the desert away from the free cities? And Jorah kind of gives us a quick recap as far as okay, if we 
go in this direction, these people will kill us and take your dragons. If you go in this direction, these people will kill us and take your dragons. We don't really have a whole lot of options. And Daenerys is kind of just running out of hope and realizing, oh yeah. So it's just kind of a reminder of, oh yeah. So this is what happened. This is what it feels like to be powerless again. Yeah. You know, we just the red, the red comment is kind of weird because in this episode, it's just used as a transition from that scene with Bran and Odor and whatnot. Uh, to Daenerys, and, right. you know, you know, obviously they say, um, you know, hey, this means a good omen. We're gonna we're gonna have a big victory against the South. Are the Lannisters? It's their color, so that means they're gonna have a victory. Or you know, it means that there's dragons. Hard cut to right. the dragons, or it could mean all, or it could mean all of it because technically all of those things do happen. The Lannisters do get their victory, but the Starks also manage to get their revenge, and then the dragons return to Westeros, obviously. So technically, if we're going by that logic, you know, just kind of because the other thing that this episode introduces as well, once we get into the status of it all, is this idea of prophecies and kind of how they have this warped meaning and they could have multiple meanings to get into. Well, I, I think the Red Comet is a very interesting thing that uh, I think we're going to be discussing a little bit later, but for the most part, it's. It's in this episode, and then I don't think it really kind of peters out. It doesn't really show up the rest of the series. It sort of is just like right. one scene, uh, you know, brief meaning into it. Um, so it, I don't know. It, you're saying to me that it has a little more impact in the, the book. Uh, than it did in the series. You know what? I can't necessarily say that it did. The whole big thing is I just feel like, you know, because it's when you're reading something versus watching it, I feel like in an adaptation, it just feels like it resonates that much more. And I and kind of what, what interests me is kind of how it does, in a way, signify and set up everything that the people do discuss it to, you know, as far as that goes. Kind of just building into the elements of storytelling. You know, once kind of the primary setup is done, which we got in season one, now we have, we're, it kind of signifies the beginning of this secondary setup and the secondary storylines that we've got. But before we get to the other big two storylines that occupy the second half of the episode. We do catch up with John north of the wall. Uh, him and the rest of the Night's Watch are going on their expedition north in order to find out what's happened north. What's happened north. John has officially made his decision to stay with the Night's Watch, and they arrive at this one place north of the wall, Craster's Keep, which is run by Craster, a wildling who marries his daughters and then obviously procreates with them in order to create more daughters for him to marry. And it's, it's, it's just an absolute beastly situation, kind of, once again, a reminder of kind of the lawless nature of the North and everything. And ultimately, the scene is mostly expository as far as kind of introducing us to a new element of, like, you know, what is North of the Wall? We've heard so much about it, but now we're actually going to get to see it over the course of these next couple oh, seasons. Yeah. And the number one uh, thing that's brought up by basically John and the other sort of characters, the other, you know, new members of Where his uh, sons. the Watch, what do they do with the sons? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you can't hey, all daughters. Yeah, we're not going to find out this uh, episode necessarily, but we'll find out soon enough, oh, uh, basically, what, what happens with the Suns. And that's going to be sort of a line, like, you know, a little bit of a, a sort of, you know, what's happening beyond the wall. You know, John sort of starts to piece things together with his, you know, friends. And because of that, it's not exactly, um, you know, the Night's Watch is not exactly what uh, he was led to believe it is. Right. And we're, we're going to get into that. But before we'll get into that, obviously, the rest of the season go. Like I said, this scene is, along with Daenerys and Bran scenes, were mostly just setups for the for the rest of what's to come. And there's not a whole lot of plot and story that goes on. Yeah, you're thing. setting up a really bad guy as, yeah. you know, someone that the Night's Watch has to deal with this season. Because Craster is uh, just this... Sort of like just one of the you know, repugnant, just a, yeah, the latest in a line of repugnant human beings that we're introduced to on this show. Yeah, but they, the you know the Lord Commander basically sort of kowtows to him. It's like you're letting us stay in your house, and it's your rules, etc. And it's to the point where it's like you know 
Craster basically likes that axe, well, we're going to give you that axe because we really need uh, your assistance to, um, you know, be able to explore up here. You know, we're going to need your shelter. We're going to need your fire. We're going to need your, you know, potential food if we run out. And so Craster's Keep is really a supply line for the, you know, Night's Watch. And it sets that up as sort of, um, you know, he's someone that they tolerate because it helps them sort of figure out what their missions are beyond the wall uh, to begin with. Absolutely. And of course, he states that he he gives a, some crucial pieces of information here before they leave, which is that, of course, he hasn't seen Benjamin Stark in months, but that he knows that the wildlings around the area have all left to go north in order to join with Mance Raider, because I believe this is the first mention of him, uh, the king beyond the wall, uh, who is also revealed to be a former Night's Watch member as Mormont as Mormont reveals, you know, when Crasser makes a jab at him, and that they are planning to attack South. Uh, that is the that is the big thing that is revealed here. So now we get into the second half of the episode, which is where we get our two big, big storylines. Obviously, we have the continuation of Rob from the Riverlands, but first we get into the introduction of our focus character and a brand new character and a brand new sect of the story and the world of Westeros. We heard about him. He was the only Baratheon sibling that we did not see last season. We heard about him a lot. He was mentioned a lot as having this incredible battle prowess, but in this next sequence, we officially meet Robert's middle brother, Stannis Baratheon, portrayed by Stephen Delane. He is our focus character of the segments. We're going to talk about him for a little bit here. But yeah, mostly, Dom, this is a fantastic setup. You know, fantastic. It's I love basically it. it's, it's one on of my the favorite beach. character introductions. Yeah, they're on the beach. They're basically worshiping the uh, Lord of Light, who we're being introduced to the, for the first time. They're basically burning the idols of the old gods. And, you know, here comes this one uh, member, right? Uh, you know, just someone within the kingdom of, of Stannis riding in and being like, have you really forsaken the old gods? Like, what are you doing? Why are you burning them? And it's this whole ceremony that's set up to basically push out, you know, they're basically their family gods and accept this new God. And Stannis walks into this really, you know, bizarre set up fire ceremony and takes a sword from it. Uh, and it's one of those things that's very um, interesting is they introduce uh, Melisandre, the the red witch. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where she is t- telling Stannis that he has this destiny to be, to basically be on the throne and he just has to basically team up with the Lord of light to do so. And, you know, it's one of those things where, um, this ceremony seems legit, but also at the same time, there's, it, an, you there's know, an underlying air of sinisterism. There yeah. Well, it, it seems set up, right? Because it's like, Oh, Hey, we we're burning these idols and we set up a sword in the middle of it. Go grab your sword. Like, is that really what the Lord of Light wants Stannis to do? Is that really how he wants him to claim his sword? Or is this sort of the witch whispering in his ear and sort of convincing him to adopt the, the, the you know, the God? And, right. uh, you know, it's, it's really just um, a, all a show. It's a stage. And I think that's one of the things that's very interesting about the Lord of Light is we don't really know anything about his powers um, you know, it's really just a, a, a spectacle. Exactly. And, you know, I think we're going to learn more about his powers as the show goes on. 
It's very interesting because the way that Stannis is introduced, it, it's almost like the antithesis of what we've heard, right? Because we've heard all of these different interesting things last season, like from Ned and from Renly. Obviously, you know, once it was revealed that like Stannis is supposed to be the rightful heir to the throne, and, and Renly even says it like Renly and Littlefinger both bring up the idea: no one wants Stannis on the throne, nobody. And in this scene, we're kind of shown it, which is really awesome because it could be so easy to be like, oh, this is to have like somebody like Davos Seaworth, who is also who is a character that we're also introduced to that seemingly has. A, it's interesting how I, every time I go back and rewatch season two, it's interesting to me how for what a character that Davos Seaworth becomes as time goes on, he really doesn't have as much to do with feeling as we would think. Kind of as we later learn he, that he is kind of Stannis's conscience and Stannis's voice of reason. In fact, it was Martin, the two things that Martin was attempting to accomplish with this sequence in the books was to establish kind of a voice for Stannis, which is why he has all the Stannis chapters narrated by Davos Seaworth, and also to kind of introduce the idea of this cultish religion. You know, because we'd heard obviously coming out of the first season we only knew of the old gods and then and the new gods obviously of westeros but now we're starting to learn about some other of these religions and in this sequence it's perfectly utilized in order to kind of show Stannis. Stannis is a man who, throughout his entire life, has felt like he's been passed over, right? He, he says it even in this season, he never felt any love towards Robert or Renly. Um, Robert never felt any love towards him personally. He was always very strict, very honor-bound, very rigid, and that's probably what drove a big wedge between Robert, because Robert, as we know, was always very, you know, big and blustery and fun and wanted to go out and party, and Stannis was kind of like, you know, the, the ne'er-do-well kid who always probably had, like, really good intentions, but just was never given a chance to prove himself, you know? And and has done so multiple times, you know, kind of been done dirty on the end of the stick. His two big famous moments, obviously, in the recent histories were in the Rebellion of the Mad King. Stannis actually almost had a moment where he wasn't sure whether to side with Robert or whether to side with um, King Aerys. And eventually he sided with Robert and he held Storm's End, the Baratheon ancestral home, during a siege uh, by the Tyrells in which they were almost completely starved out. And it was actually because of Davos Seaworth that they were able to withstand it as Davos was able to smuggle in onions, which is why Stannis obviously has a, um, you know, you know gave, gives him a place in his court as well. The other obviously big moment was during the Greyjoy Rebellion when Stannis' fleet destroyed the Greyjoy fleet. So Stannis, he's an experienced battle commander, right? And so it's he's always seemed like that one character that on paper has all the makings of a great king. He's, a, he's, an, he's an excellent, experienced battle commander. He has a way of unifying men. He's firm and knows what he wants, and all, but also is incredibly just. And as well, uh, unlike Ned Stark, knows how to play the game, as, as he states later on, yeah, knows how to I, play the game. I was about to say, basically, Stannis is sort of like Ned Stark on steroids, so to speak. Like, it's basically Ned, has the Ned same... Stark if he, it's Ned Stark if he had less sympathy and a, a better understanding of the game. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like he understands the game and, you know, he's just ready to play it. And Ned is, you know, has this certain honor, uh, this sort of tradition about, you know, being a warrior in the field. Uh, but, you know, Ned is sort of was separated in the north, whereas Stannis sort of grew up in the mix and he right. understands, um, you know, that there's threats at every angle. Right. You know, Ned, for whatever reason, sort of was isolated and came back into it and just didn't realize how far it had come from the uh, d the days of the rebellion. Exactly, and and, and Stannis, um, what's uh, what's it called? And there's and, and another example of how Stannis has kind of been done dirty is that when Robert was doling out you know castles to rule when he became king, rather than giving Stannis Storm's End as he was the next in line, he gave Stannis control over Dragonstone. You know the the original ancestral home of the Targaryens for when they originally touched down in Westeros to rule over, which at that point was a ruin, um, and then gave Renly 
control over Storm's End. So, and that's kind of why they're situated there. The other big moment, obviously, like I said, is Maester Crescent, because this sequence was actually the prologue sequence for the for the second book of Clash of Kings, in which Maester Crescent tries to come out, urges them to, you know, remember their old gods, and then, you know, states to Davos, you know, like Melisandre, she she's telling Stannis what he wants, but at the end, she will be his doom. And once again, more foreshadowing as far as what's to come with him. And then he attempts to make the move, you know, during kind of their big council sit down uh, as far as, you know, trying to stop a bad thing before it happens, because the whole thing is Maester Crescent is uh, not only Stannis, but also Robert and Renly's um, Maester from when they were children. So he's kind of seen them all grow up. So he's seen this familiar, he has this familial connection to them. And so he's trying to, in his eyes, prevent something that is only going to lead Stannis down a dark path. But unfortunately, it is all for naught because Melisandre proves that she is way more than just show here by drinking the wine, obviously. I, I, it's always interesting to me what they do with Melisandre because they set her up as a character who could be all for show and could just have her own motivation. But as time goes on, you do learn, no, there are, there are some actual powers to this woman. And it's kind of, I think it's really interestingly shown as time goes on throughout the season, kind of her wavering allegiance and as far as, you know, kind of her motivation behind the Lord of Light. But the big moments, obviously, to yeah. take away from that big sit down. Well, well I'm just going to say, like, you know, the, the whole poisoning scene where he goes and he sort of uh, says, hey, let's drink to this and, like, here's your cup, here's mine, and it's the same wine. And he's really willing to sacrifice himself. And basically he starts sort of bleeding from the nose and whatnot, and she's perfectly fine. She actually takes the wine and downs it even more. And so, you know, she does have some sort of ability, at least the ability to resist poison at, uh, of whatever kind this is. And I think that's a really smart scene to show that, you know, not only is she sort of a religious figure and converting uh, Stannis, but she also seems to have some sort of resistance to poison. So maybe there is some truth to power behind the Lord of Light. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind. Of, I love this too because it's also shown as again a very visual and forthcoming scene in a way in which to show. Yeah, these are. This is the beginning of like kind of these different religions that we're going to be introduced to. Obviously, you know, as we become used to, you know, the drowned god that the Iron Islanders worshipped, and the many-faced god that uh, the you know the Bravosi and the and the faceless men worship, and uh, you know, so 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 many different gods, so many different uh, you know religions that were introduced to kind of the di the effect that that has on people. It's a more underrated aspect, I think, of the show as. A goes forward but the final scene obviously in which Stannis literally states you know Ned Stark kept trying to keep this a secret I will not make the same mistake in which he writes a letter basically exposing Joffrey and his siblings parent true parentage to all the high lords of Westeros but another crucial scene that is revealed about Stannis before we kind of end this segment you know end our focus character segment as far as that goes is that Stannis is a hard man and a just man but he is not necessarily a fair man because as Davos urges him, you know, Renly is your brother, and Rob Stark shares a common cause with you. Um, as far as that goes, you could, um, you know, you could ally with them against them. And Re and Stannis is very curt. He's like, Renly is conspiring with against me in order to try and steal my throne, and Rob Stark conspires to take away half my kingdom. You know, if they are nothing more than thieves, and if they get in my way, I will destroy them. And it just kind of shows that, like, the, it's ultimately Stannis' fatal flaw, and ultimately the thing that will eventually get him killed is this idea that when he is dead set on something he is so dead set on it that nothing will get in his way not even things that could potentially help him because again that that was always a point that kind of baffled me i'm like all three of these guys i'm like renly rob and stannis all have common cause you know i'm, I'm like stannis wants the throne because he's owed it rob just wants independence and wants justice for ned and renly 
Renly probably has the least amount uh, amount of cause and claimed and claim into the throne because you know he's just trying to get attention and you know and, and prove himself a man and prove himself mature. But the three of them do have common cause and just the f- and it, but it, it's again the brilliance of the sh- of the show and the story because it's it's just the fact that these three cannot get their shit together and cannot ally together, which is what eventually causes at least for the time being the Lannister victory. Yeah, well, Renly is one of those characters that you know he's short lived in this season. But, you know, spoiler alert, I guess. But the fact is, Renly actually knows how to play the game because he's been in Robert's court and closely connected to it. And he understands, you know, what's at play in King's Landing and, and uh, you know, abroad. Whereas Stannis is sort of isolated. He's doing his own thing. And he's this old war commander that no one really sort of believes uh, is, you know, really in involved. You know, he's sort of an outside outsider at this point. So Renly is trying to basically go in there and push out Stannis. And he has the ability to because he has a lot of bannermen uh, that they share, the Baratheon bannermen. And he sort of convinces them to his side. So Renly is one of those people that knows how to play the game. He actually knew it in season one when he tried to get Ned to, uh, you know, team up with him and basically overthrow the Lannisters. And that didn't go so well because Ned did not believe in playing the game, uh, which basically meant that Renly had to flee the city which led to Ned Stark's dying. And now Renly still knows how to play the game. He has a lot of people backing him and, you know, probably more than Stannis really has. And, you know, it's one of those things where even though Stannis is like, you're my younger brother and, you know, you should bend the knee to me. uh, Renly understands how to play the game and he knows that he has outfoxed Stannis. And so it's just a matter of time for Renly to really, you know, basically uh, repel Stannis and then really achieve what he wants. And so I think this is going to be a key thing that the fact that the two Baratheons are are fighting and having this like real sibling war, uh, this is going to really vote well for the Lannisters uh, as we see throughout the season. Absolutely. And we're going to see that continue to play out as far as that goes. And the last major storyless that's just so you guys know that's the end roughly of the focus character segment so the last big thing that we have for this episode is of course the riverlands plot rob this is the, the so last season obviously the season finale we saw him obviously you know get crowned king of the north but this premiere episode just shows rob is ready to move rob is ready to start making some moves he is ready to, he he is fully Uh, what's it called? He has fully accepted the mantle of King of the North, and he is fully ready to make some power moves here. His first move, obviously, is once he's received the letter, you know, once again, another infamous moment where we do just another time jump, where he receives the letter, he interrogates Jamie. he kind of fills in the gaps, obviously, the Catelyn was kind of unable to get in her interrogation of Jamie in the last season, season finale, where he says, you know, what's it called? He says, you know, Joffrey doesn't really have a claim to the throne because he's your bastard son, and that's why you pushed Bran out the window because he caught you too. And Jamie, of course, tries to repel it and says, you have proof. But Rob once again states that, you know, Rob once in once again in that scene proves that he is no fool and he understands that, you know, the value that Jamie has, but what he has to do in order to, you know, kind of keep Jamie under a tight leash and keep his bannermen under a tight leash. And so he states to Jamie that he's going to send Jamie's cousin, Sir Alton Lannister, south with his peace terms, uh, which of course include, you know, the return of Ned's bones, the return of Sansa and Arya safely, and the full independence of the North. 
Uh, if you think about it, you know, rather reasonable terms, you know, as far as that goes, it's he doesn't really necessarily want to wage this war. Obviously, you know, Ned's dead, so the whole, you know, kind of campaign to, uh, you know, rescue him has failed. If he just gets Ar Sansa and Arya back and they get the independence that they want, uh, you know, that kind of frees up the Lannisters to deal with Robert's brother. So logistically, his terms really aren't the worst, but of course, just because of pride and ego and just so many things that have happened now that just can't be fixed. Obviously, we know that, that will not happen. After obviously the scene where he uh, set where he sends Sir Alton south, uh, of course we get the next big moment with Theon, who finally starts to come into his own a little bit. Obviously Theon refers to him as Your Grace. They these two obviously they still have their brotherly bond, which is where Theon urges him: the Lannisters are never going to accept your peace terms. The only way you're going to win this war is by taking King's Landing, and if you do that, you're going to need ships. My father has ships, and so this is where. Now that kind of Rob has taken over of the mantle of head of the Starks in Ned's place, this is where kind of the beginning of Rob's downfall begins. We already saw the technically the second step, right? We saw the beginning of it last season with him being forced into this deal with the devil with Walder Frey. And now we see the second stage of it with him trusting and sending Theon away to his to the Iron Islands to attempt to convince his father, Balon Greyjoy, to ally his cause to Rob. An action that Catelyn strongly opposes because she remembers Balon Greyjoy and she knows and she remembers how he upstated the minute that he was given just even an ounce. He tried to start a rebellion and that he is untrustworthy, but Rob ultimately shushes her up and then states his decision that he is now sending her south in order to try and recruit Renly to their side as well. Uh, he's not even bothering with Stannis. Uh, Pat, how do you think Rob's doing so far as King of the North with, with the next of, you know, obviously, you know, it, it's, it's it, Rob does a really good job except for, uh, when it comes to dealing with Walter Frey and the Greyjoys, and the Greyjoys. right? Because, because it, it's so clear if, you know, from watching this show and watching it again, that these, you know, families are so untrustworthy. So untrustworthy. It, there, there's I don't know. no it's way. It's one of those sort like, of anarchy things where I don't know how anyone gets anything done because I feel like after a certain point, just nobody would trust each other. Yeah, but like Walter Frey is known as the person that never shows up or whatever the, the, the phrasing is. Lord Frey, as he's called. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, he, he's not even trusted to basically honor his banners or his promises. But yet we trust him. We make this deal to marry, you know, some of his daughters. Then, you know, obviously uh, that leads to the Red Wedding, you know. But the, the fact is, like, Walter Frey was like an enemy, really, from the start of this. And they didn't treat him like that. They treated him as someone that they could sort of pay off or they sort of, you know, could make deals with. And they never really thought like, hey, you know, the other side might have a better offering for them and they might actually take it. Uh, the Greyjoys, again, you know, the, they tried to rebel before uh, against the Starks and were put down. And if you know anything about the Greyjoys from watching this show, it's that they're proud people and being put down is not something they're going to stand for. They're going to pay the iron price. So the fact is that Rob really doesn't know this yeah. or wasn't taught this, but I feel yes. like the education in the North, you know, specifically for the Lords of Winterfell was pretty high. So I don't understand, you know, really what Rob's thinking when he tries to get the Greyjoys involved, because, you know, if, if anything, there's reason to not trust them uh, even more than the phrase, not trusting the phrase. To me, so, it's an ultimate sign that he was just a child that was raised during peacetime. And he was raised in this era where, again, he, he was too young. He was born 
during the during the during the rebellion against the Iron Throne. He was a young child when the when the Greyjoy Rebellion happened. So it's just a matter of the majority of his life has been peace. And now that he's all of a sudden been thrust into this conflict, right, he's ready, obviously, to wage war. The problem is, right now, he's only got the one direction, right? Which is, I feel like, again, in a weird way, kind of an avatar for the audience, where he's got out this one blind set is like get to the Lannisters stop the Lannisters that he doesn't really take into account the fact that yeah these other families have you know wants and desires and ambition as well it's not just the Lannisters it, it's ultimately it's it's this fact that I think really does set season two as a whole apart is this idea of taking what we thought was going to be this back and forth conflict you know between the Starks and the Lannisters the Starks is the good guys and the Lannisters are the bad guys and season two throws in all of these different struggles. Oh, the other Baratheons are not going to be the same as Robert. You know, they're not going to be in their corner. Okay, now we've got the Greyjoys. Now we've got the Freys. Soon enough, we're going to be introduced to the Tyrells, you know, and we've got all of these different factors that are coming in. And you start to find, it just, it expands the, the scope of all the families in a way that really the characters just don't seem to understand because they're coming off of 10 years of peace because it has been 10 years since the Greyjoy Rebellion. So as far as that goes, it, it, it kind of makes sense as far as why Rob seems to think that everyone that's kind of not a Lannister is kind of in their court, you know? He's got the right thinking with Renly as far as that goes, but, you know, we don't know this at the time, but obviously once Cat arrives in Renly's camp in order to negotiate with him, but... Uh, he clearly doesn't have this thought process or understanding, really, about the Greyjoys. And we're going to see it come back to bite him in a bad way, obviously, once Theon goes what he goes through in this season and makes the choices that he goes through in this season as well, ultimately. Yeah, so, I really I really think this is uh, worse for Theon than it is for Rob. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, <laughs> because, it, sets up Theon, because and... it sets up Theon to be abducted by Ramsay later on. So it, it just, yeah. it's a bad... It's the beginning of... <laughs> it, like, it's good to know that in the first episode, Rob's first mainstay is kind of the new Stark in charge, and he's all Already up to fucking up, somehow even worse than his dad did, because we all know Ned's decision making at King's Landing last season was pretty damn poor, but it already shows that Rob is kind of setting him up for something that's so much worse here. But we have one major sequence left, of course, which is probably one of the most despicable things that I think has ever been put to television. Like, we've seen a lot of fucked up shit, or at the time when this episode aired, there have been a lot of screwed up shit that have been portrayed on TV, but like, and there was a lot of screwed up shit that was yet to come, you know, just in this show. But this is one of the worst, where after an amazing sequence in which Cersei, you know, strong-arms Littlefinger into trying to track down Arya, in which Littlefinger attempts to, you know, show that he has some leverage over Cersei, and Cersei immediately shows him, no, 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 you, you, you're well, not the one in charge here. The argument is, you know, knowledge is power, and then Cersei's retort is, power is power. And I think that's a pretty interesting dynamic, and just seeing, you know, how the two view things, because uh, Lord Baelish could have easily been put out of his misery uh, just by a whim that Cersei had. And so ultimately, she did have power that was even more important than whatever knowledge uh, Lord Baelish thinks he had. Right. Absolutely. And it ultimately ends with Cersei then going to confront Joffrey as he's having some renovations done on the throne room, trying to make it look more like the Targaryens and embody them. He's like, yeah, they were conquerors. And, of course, Cersei is trying, once again, trying. She is trying so hard. I feel so bad. I, I, it's really hard 
to make me feel bad for a character like Cersei Lannister, but this one episode really does make me feel bad. First off, for her being one-upped by Tyrion, which we know is just the last thing that she would ever want, and then her slowly realization that Joffrey, now that he is king, is not going to be as easily controlled as he was when he was just a prince, which is that she, of course, tries to get him to focus up and try and find Arya because she knows that he's the preference, but he really doesn't seem to take that seriously. He's like, let her die, as far as that goes. Who actually cares? Once again, him refusing to understand the game and him refusing to really understand the value of the player that she has, but then, of course, because we know that Joffrey is only motivated by things that, you know, piss him off and, and, and petty little things. You know, he, he, he of course, obviously, like everyone else now in Westeros has received Stannis' letter, and, you know, like he said, the, um, you know, as he quote-unquote, the disgusting lie about his mother and Uncle Jamie. Quick question! Because I always wondered this, and I wanted to throw this past someone. Do you think because, 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 again, this just shows the power of the performances that these actors give, right? With the, with the expression that Jack Leeson is giving in his performance in this specific moment, obviously he has to say that it's a lie in order to kind of preserve their whole status quo and everything, in order to preserve their kind of stance and their, and their, and their piece of the pie that they have right now in this war that's about to happen. But do you think that Joffrey suspects that there might be some truth to, uh, obviously, you know, the incest statement that Stannis has just now made public knowledge for the entire kingdom? You know, for the most part, I think Joffrey probably accepts that. And it's like, hey, this is my throne. I have it. I'm sitting on it. So I feel like he's not necessarily like worried too much about, you know, the game that's being played. And so he probably just dismisses it. But at the same time, it's he's saying, like, this is our throne. Like, they can say whatever they want. So right. is it sort of like a teenager just sort of, you know, ignoring that and just calling it what it is, which is sort of a misinformation tactic, or does he just really not care? It's like, uh, they have the power, they have the throne. That's all that matters. It doesn't really matter what his origin is. Uh, you know, I, I think either one of those is acceptable in terms of, of Joffrey's mindset. Uh, one of the things I think is great though, in this scene is when Cersei basically slaps just him across slaps the face. Him. When, he's, when, and, he, when, when he's literally just rubbing in her face, he's just like, how, it's just like, how many women was, oh, was father having sex with? And she just belts him across the yeah, face. Like, no, well, I've heard enough of that shit. It sets up the whole, you know, thing with the bastards, but also it, it's one of those things where Joffrey's just like little, uh, like screaming like a girl moments whenever he gets slapped. By oh, that somebody. little, uh, it, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, I don't even it's know how perfect. to classify that kind of noise. It's like the perfect amount of just like petulant and, and pathetic, but like, like that just shows like the inner, the, the inner like child and, and that, that he really is that he's trying so hard to like cover up with like this veneer of just cynicism and psychopathy. Yeah, it's it's every time that it comes out, it's perfect. And I think uh, I think Tyrion gets another whack in uh, later in the season. Oh, Tyrion gets a couple. Um, Tyrion gets <laughs> yeah. a couple good ones in this season. Yeah, it's one of, the, and then you know, it, it it's the great part about Joffrey because you know Tyrion does this throughout the second season because this is really Tyrion's uh, you know rise to power yeah. and being a really good hand of the king, and essentially um, you know at the end of this season and into the next season. Uh, basically Tywin comes into town and he actually has a lot of good quips against Joffrey uh, during his time uh, in King's Landing. So uh, Joffrey really has this like hard exterior, like brutal King making bad decisions. Um, but when, you know, Tyrion has his power and concentrates it and knows what to do with it. And Tywin knows what to do with it. 
Joffrey just really is not a, a contender. Not he doesn't know how to really defeat them. Yep. Um, and it's, it's interesting to just watch him sort of, uh, you know, snivel at their feet. It, it, it's a line that I've heard in a movie before and I can't, fucking remember what movie it's from and it's pissing me off you might know it it's a line that some character says like and i can't even give the context i just know the line which is that you were never even a player to begin with and i feel like that perfectly applies to joffrey where the only thing that's propping him up right now is kind of his position that he's solidified for himself in king's landing but in every other sense of the word it's like everyone kind of knows this even sets up kind of the fact that like even the common people kind of begin to understand yeah joffrey not only is not a good king but he's not even a rightful king and i feel like that's kind of solidified by his actions specifically his one final action which is response obviously to Stannis's letter and kind of solidifying, yeah, we're on the throne now, which is the, his order for the City Watch to go and promptly murder all of the rest of Robert's bastards. And they even say that Robert has like some 14 or 15 bastards just in King's Landing alone. And we see quite a rather brutal and just kind of detestable scene in which several, because they're not even really, it's not even really enough adults. They're all children, you know, just all being promptly murdered. It even starts off obviously, you know, with the baby that we saw from last season that Ned visited in the brothel shortly before he was attacked by Jamie is, is yeah. brutally murdered. It, it's really a disturbing yeah, scene. And this, this sequence has a lot of parallels in my mind to the, uh, that sequence in Breaking Bad when sort of Walt is orchestrating Oh, yeah, this. When, when Walt orchestrates the murders of everyone across the yeah, world for jail. exactly. Yeah. So, like, you know, obviously this is totally different because we're, we're, you know, attacking bastard children. But the fact is we're cutting from different areas. Uh, yeah. We're seeing the brothel baby be murdered. Really well um, done as far as an editing, as far as editing. Yeah, goes. exactly. And, and it ends with basically, uh, you know, the blacksmith having his head held to the coals, uh, telling us, where is uh, you know Gendry. this boy? Yeah. What's his name? And it's like oh, it's Gendry. It's like you'll know him by his bull helmet he made for himself. And then it's like they let him go, and it cuts to Gendry jumping on the cart, uh, hanging out with Arya, and they're they're going off on the King's Road. The King's and then it hits the uh, credits, and it's like you know that's a really good start to the season because we now know that you know what Joffrey's doing what you know King's Landing is going to be chasing after Gendry uh, but because Gendry is with Arya then that puts her at risk and we sort of you know instantly understand that the two of them are sort of tied together that they got to escape King's Landing they got to get as far as way as possible and um, they're going to have to stick together if they're going to really outchase the uh, the King's man absolutely it's a fantastic premiere episode. It sets up all of, I think, the struggles that are going to come throughout this season, both for the characters that have big moments in this episode and small moments. And it sets up, I think, a much more fast pace, we'll say, and a lot more action-oriented than, say, the first season did. So, the last thing I want to leave you with before we dive into kind of our last segment, which is the Gotcha First segment, because I just want to talk a little bit more about that comment and kind of what it signifies for things to come, which is, uh, do you think this is better or worse than the pilot episode? Uh, I think as far as this, a premiere goes, obviously, again, it's really weird because you know pilots are pilots. That's one thing, but this is like a premiere episode. I think this episode really sets up the second season, and you know, it, it gets us interested, and we understand sort of what is happening. You know, what wheels are turning, and it sort of just pulls you in. I think right away. I think the first episode of the first season is something that sort of pulls you in, but. I think, you know, in terms of like a brand new show, some things are sort of predictable. It's a lot of exposition. It's like, you know, it's it's not as clear cut what's going to happen in the rest of the season. Uh, you know, it's really taking you by the hand over the course of the first few episodes. I think in season two, 
this episode starts you off with like, all right, let's recap a little bit, but like, this is where we're going. And it's pretty clear, uh, sort of the, uh, lines that we're following with the different characters, uh, from this point going forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause that's the thing that I want to do going forward is kind of just like, it's a thing that I was doing with my Sopranos rewatch as well, which is I want to see like kind of how all the premiere episodes compare to each other, how all the penultimate episodes, which are like the big end all be all action set piece episodes compare to each other and how all the finales compare to each other. So that's, so now we have our first two, obviously the premiere winter is coming and the North remember. So we'll keep track of that going forward. Now, before we get out of here, obviously this comment, right? Cause it's a thing that is briefly hinted at and really only uses a transition in this episode, but within the books themselves is kind of used as this thing to signify like greater things to come right because there's a lot that happens in a clash of kings that also sets up future things to come there's a lot more characters that are introduced a lot more players into the game right we have the birth of daenerys's dragons who even though they're still relatively little will come to play a big part in the trajectory we also have kind of the introduction of the prophecy right another big thing of melisandre within this episode is kind of her examination of the azor high plot which is you know kind of the light bringer the guy who will you know save the world from the great other you know because that's the other th- instance that's kind of interesting about the whole lord of light religion it's kind of you know the the mixing of the fire half of the song of ice and fire aspect which is that you'll will have both the dragons who could breathe fire and we'll have the lord of light where the lord of light is kind of used to signify this figure that will overcome the great darkness which at first it seemed to assume just like the players in front of us but is later revealed to be obviously the white walkers and kind of the overall looming threat that they pose but i don't know pat like what do you kind of make of this whole idea of kind of what this comet represents as far as like because the interesting thing about Game of Thrones is that it very much gets into this idea of prophecies not really being this overwhelming end-all, be-all thing, but really more so just kind of subjective depending on which person reads into it. Hey, you know, uh, this comment means nothing to me. <laughs> I hate to be uh, God damn it, uh, honest. You know, listen, you hey, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty cool scene, you know, to have this comment in the sky and it, it sparks up a nice little debate between Osha and, and Bran, but... Ultimately, it's like it's quickly used as a transition and it's like, oh, hey, it means the coming of dragons cut to baby dragons, you know, and so I think the show really undercuts it a little bit. Uh, you know, it's it doesn't bring it back in any of the rest of the episode or the rest of the series. It's sort of just a quick scene uh, comment. It's like, oh, well, the books had the comment. So let's have it here. Um, you know, it, I, I don't necessarily think it really plays a big role, at least in the TV series. So I, I, you know, I don't know. You tell me, you read the book. Well, I think just as a uh, sort of like, it seems like it, yeah, it has a bigger impact in the in the the books than it does here in the TV series. I find, well, from, what from, what I re- from what I remember, it's a thing that it's so bright that I think they even see a glimpse of it north of the wall, although I'm not sure. And the whole thing is that it's supposed to kind of act as kind of this looming overall force as kind of like, okay, so that we we thought that there was going to be this one overwhelming thing. Now there's going to be this other thing that is kind of introduced. You know, if season one introduces the ice element, that season two introduces the fire element. And this is going to be like kind of the push, the, almost the symbolic push-pull back and forth, you know, that is then obviously butchered along with many other things by the finale. So before we get out of here, just wanted to, of course, give a shout out to a couple of our commenters. Eric, good to have you back. Uh, I pointed out, I pulled up a couple of his comments, but I did want to bring up one other comment, which I think is uh, another thing that I feel like a lot of people agree with, but just, yeah, I do find that seasons two and three, most of the time, do kind of blend together more than any other seasons. Yeah, I, I, I would agree because, like, I, I can binge watch season two and three all in, like, one weekend. It, it is 
fantastic. It just keeps going and going and going, and it, it's all fantastic. Absolutely, yes. And then we have a newcomer, uh, Miss Cub, who commented, "I need to be drunk to deal with Joffrey too." Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a very that's a. <laughs> well, very I, I, I don't know if uh, drinking around Joffrey is a good thing. Uh, Stannis the Menace and uh, he all Eric also brought up uh, would love to see a spinoff about the Lord of Light himself as to finally find out what his or her deal is really about honestly I'm down with that I'm down I'm always down to explore more of the mythological elements of anything um, well, only if Jeff Bridges can play the Lord of Light I'm down with that honestly like we got Jeffrey Wright voicing watching the Watcher in the upcoming What If I would definitely be down for that uh, Miss Cobb also commented not good allies to our allies comment before yeah yeah, I feel I feel like Downey Jr. needs to be in that scene to just be like not a great plan as far as that goes. Another thing that um they they brought up, uh, Jano Slint is just the worst. Yes, absolutely, we're gonna see him get his in the next episode, definitely. But uh, yeah, that was pretty much it for comments. Now, of course, the only thing that we end with that was the thing that we end every episode with, which is of course the death count. Obviously, so we had a lot of deaths in this episode, but for but did I'm we kind like of some the, some guy got thrown off the top? We did. Of the so building. we have the night. At the beginning of the episode, who was brutally murdered by the hound and chucked off, and we obviously saw him get dragged away, and we just saw like the blood just get just leave the stain on there as he was getting dragged away. We have the death of Maester Crescent when he kills himself, obviously oh, with yeah, the poison yeah, yeah. unintentionally, and then of course it ends. All the bastards, yeah. all the bastards, just like there's like fourteen or fifteen kids that just all get brutally murdered, and then leaves only like two of Robert's bastards like alive. Well, really one because Edric Storm is not a character in the sh- in the show. They kind of mix Edric Storm just into Gendry, so. Without further ado, people, that's it. We're officially back, people. Nine more episodes to go for season two, and then we'll have another season in the books. Pat, I hope you're ready, because there is going to be a lot to cover as this season goes yeah, on. Yeah, I, I think we're back in the swing of things, and I think uh, the Talking TV audience remembers uh, how this is done. Absolutely. Yeah. Are you kidding me? They never forgot. They never forgot. They, they were our they were our memory for it ultimately. And I can't wait ultimately to cover what I think at the end of the day, once we eventually do the rankings of all the seasons, is gonna turn out to be one of the better seasons. You know, obviously we know it's between this season, season four, and season six for the best season ultimately. And so we're I I think we're definitely going to, you know, kind of continue to see the effects of that as this season goes on. But Pat, before we get out of here, where can the good people find you? Hey, listen, I, I just direct everybody to uh, my Instagram at Patrick W. Huber, H-U-B-E-R, and I'll post on there someday. You know, right now I'm just sort of uh, uh, doing other things, but I feel like I'm taking photos, going to do some edits, and I'll, I'll probably post at some point in life. Absolutely. And you guys know what to do here. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Talking TV Podcast. Also, be sure to click the subscribe button, click the like button, click the bell next week so you guys get notified every time we put up new content. New episodes of Talking Thrones are going to be uploaded every Sundays. We'll be live going forward for the foreseeable future, unless something happens, which of course we'll let you know about that. But we'll see you next, guys, next week for episode 12 of Talking Thrones, season 2, episode 2, The Nightlands. But in the meantime, you guys know what to do. Stay frosty, stay cool, stay hot. 12 seasons in a short film and watch more fucking movies. We'll see you guys next week.